This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. New Zealand is experiencing a horrendous spike in crime, has been well documented all over the place. Uh, Parnell and Newmarket have also been impacted with some incidents up over 70% year on year. This is especially affecting our small business owners. What will your party do to improve safety on our streets in 90 seconds? So what we have to recognise is that tough on crime policy doesn't make our streets safer. Time and time again we have seen in history that every time we oppress people with tough on crime policies, they come back ready to fight us even stronger. So if we want to get um, on, on top of crime, we need to look at the drivers of crime and we need to support our police to do their job. Unfortunately, we're in a system where we have underfunded mental health care and social services, so the police officers who receive four months of training are out there doing the work of mental health nurses and social workers that require a three-year university degree and assuming that they're going to do that job just as well. This is not the case. Police officers, their role, their mandate is to uphold the law, and they cannot uphold the law if they're busy dealing with the social issues that we have led to, we have led to fester in our communities. And the biggest stakeholders of crime are our communities. So what we need to do is we, we, we need to release funds back into the community to enable better social cohesion, because you know there's that saying, that idle hands make devils work. And so we need to give young people economic opportunities and that feeling of social engagement so that they don't feel like they need to go and ram raid, that they can actually make something of themselves. So the justice system is all about accountability. If we want more punishment, we will get more punishment, but we will not Thank tackle the source that. of crime. Awesome. Uh Right. Well, I, th I think it's, it's worth just understanding what's happened in the last five or six years. There is always a balance between saying people who commit crimes are typically people who had a pretty rough time in life, and with some focus on rehabilitation, they can get back on the right, the right track, and then we save money and we're safe because we don't have to lock people up. Uh, and it's an understandable vision. Um, the current government has gone so far down that track. They got rid of three strikes. They set a target of reducing the prison population. They massively increased the use of people being out on ankle bracelets. And what we've seen is that in practically every category of crime, the victimisation has increased. It's pretty simple. We have gone far too far in the direction that if only we're kinder to criminals, they'll be kind back, and it has not worked. And good, honest people trying to run a business are suffering for that decision every day. So what do we say about it? Well, we should equip prisons to increase the numbers if judges want to send people there. And then we should say, if you want to get out on early parole, learn to read, get a driver's license. We've got to stop letting people out of prison without the ability to go straight on the outside. We should put 17-year-olds back in the adult justice system because the experiment of putting them in youth courts has failed. They just defend for an extra year for free, and people in this community are often victims of that. We have quite a number of further policies, including our Oranga Tamariki policy release that I'd love to talk about, but I don't want to get in trouble with Cheryl or Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, the, the current government has managed the inverse of Tony Blair's great dictum of being tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. They've managed to be both soft on crime and soft on the causes of crime uh, because of the message that they've sent that there aren't clear consequences, a culture of excuses that they've uh, developed, which is uh, everywhere understood by every shopkeeper you've talked to, is that there's no consequences for these particularly young offenders, uh, but it flows through the whole system. And then they've, as I said, failed to make any progress on those long-term issues around truancy. 
delinquency, around uh, emergency accommodation because of a failed housing policy, around mental health. And so you've actually got to do those basics and send uh, a clear message around uh, real consequences for serious crime. Uh, you need to restrict the uh, extreme discretion for judges to reduce sentences to the extent they have, uh, and then actually deliver quality uh, rehabilitation programs. And we're talking about doing that for all prisoners, including those who are still awaiting a trial. Uh, and, and also uh, redirect some of the money that's currently been spent by uh, Harry Tam and all his mates um, uh, doing the uh, cottage industry of cultural reports and give that to the victims of crime uh, to help them uh, deal with uh, getting over what has been very difficult circumstances. Uh, and so uh, it's around sending a clear message and backing it up with uh, clear, decent uh, policies that are around dealing with those long-term drivers as well. Right on the minute. Perfect. Labour. Thank you. Um, in terms of what Labour is trying to do, and, and I believe when we talk about crime, and we know uh, from the statistics that always uh, impacts our communities, I for one, I believe in reading that the data, uh, we have to work with evidence, and data is important for us. Research is also important for us, and for the Labour Party is ensuring that we do not throw people into prison, especially for our young people, that we don't throw them into prison because of the research that tells us that the mental health of our people needs to be well looked after. We care about our people, and in caring for that, we want to ensure. Yes, there are other factors that we have to look. It's a complex issue. It's not just something that we can say, oh, yeah, just put them there. Um, the importance of ensuring that they they yes the time the com the committing of the crime but to look at all the areas that impact and cultural reports as we see and i speak specifically when it comes to our maori and pacific because they have always been highlighted and especially in our tamaki electorate that they are the ones committing the crime but we don't understand the complexity when it comes to their background uh, they all our children once and most of us know that all they want is love attention and when they don't get it they tend to have peer pressure around them. They get drifted into committing this crime. How can we bring them up, put them in a place, uh, invest in them for rehabilitation, but also encourage them to also be part of our community and learn more skills that when they, they don't get into that sense in terms of Thank prison, you. but coming out to support our community? Staying, staying with Labour, uh, quick fire question, yes or no. Do you support more police walking the beats in town centres, yes or no? Yes. yes. Community police, yes. 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 <laughs> that was an emphatic yes. So hopefully, from this whole table, after the election, we're going to see more police walking on the beach. And you heard it here first. Uh, praise the Lord. Um, second question on the same theme of crime: uh, Will you put a specific focus on youth crime? Yes or no? Starting with Paul. National. Uh, uh, yes, and we've announced our plan. Yes. Labour. Yes. Yes. An ongoing dispute between the Bus Drivers Union and New Zealand Bus in Auckland has seen bus schedules disrupted this week, although the drivers are also pledging to take Aucklanders for free around the city this Matariki weekend. Edward Miller is a researcher and policy analyst with First Union, and he joins me now. Edward, can you just give us a potted history of why this dispute has flared up at the moment? What's happened in this bargaining is that the drivers have gone in with the expectation um, that they will be getting to $30 an hour, as we've had in these long-running tripartite discussions up to this point. But NZ Bus has said, well, we're using the money that we've got from central and local government to top up the overtime rates at the same time, and therefore we can't get the base rates up to that $30 level. The drivers are saying, well, look, the, the, the agreement from all parties was that we would work towards a $30 rate. That's what the money that you have been given from both central and lo local government was intended to do. The penal rates is something that we've negotiated with you, and therefore you should be paying that out of your own pocket as the operator, and that, that we deserve a $30 base rate because that's what drivers around the rest of the country um, are getting, and that's what we negotiated for through that pro process. If the unions hadn't been involved in that negotiation, then we wouldn't have been able to get that money coming from central and local government. We were part of the negotiation that got, got them there. They should be rewarding drivers with that money and getting them to $30 an hour. There seems to also be an idea that migrant workers that are bought in will, will now make more than the people who are already working for NZ Bus. That's right. So the 
migrant workers that are coming in are coming in on a flat base rate, which doesn't include the penal rates or the overtime rates. So they're on a different part of the, they're then coming in on individual agreements. So that means that as a result, they're coming in on higher base rates than the base rates that the, that our members are, are receiving under the collective agreement. So in effect, what we're seeing is NZ Bus trying to use public money to de-unionize the industry, to make it a zero-sum game, for there to be no benefit for drivers to, to join the union. Uh, that's all being done with public money, and that's extremely concerning for us. And that there should, you know, the government should have put, I guess, tighter constraints around how that money was was used in the first place. But we now have, obviously, we we support migrant drivers coming into the country, and we we think it's fantastic that we can get more drivers from offshore to to address that shortage and to get the public transport system moving again. Uh, but there shouldn't be this disparity between new drivers and and drivers who've been here for a long time on lower rates. As a, as a layperson, it's very hard to understand why, when the the issue is so obvious, i.e. bus drivers not paid enough, and even $30 an hour is really not enough for the kind of job they do, as anyone who rides an Auckland bus will tell you, um, why have they not responded to market signals that it's not enough? Uh, why have the companies not responded yes. to market signals? Yeah. I mean... These companies are uh, now increasingly owned and operated by private offshore private equity funds who are zero focused on returning on returns for for their shareholders or for the people that invest in their funds. They will do whatever it takes to ensure that they can maximize those returns. And unlike domestic companies or companies that are based here in Aotearoa, they don't really experience the repercussions that come along with having bus driver strikes or lockouts and those kind of things. Most of these funds, you know, Richie's, for example, which is not involved in this dispute, but was recently bought by KKR. KKR operates out of the Cayman Islands. It's a tax haven with, you know, everything that comes along with that. These companies are zero focused on their returns and they have no connection to the domestic market. So just being able to say, well, the wage rates aren't in line with where they should be within the market. That's not really a factor driving the way they make decisions. Forgive me if you've already answered this question, if, if you've already mentioned this, but the last time I talked to you, we talked about fair pay agreements for bus drivers. Yep. Now, how is that going to impact this particular dispute? Well, I think if we had a fair pay agreement with a $30 wage floor, which is, again, through that tripartite discussion that I mentioned before, was the objective... I would expect that this would 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 resolve the dispute. You know that the company wouldn't be able to say, "Well, we're taking some of the government money and putting it into your penal rates rather than topping up your base rates." The thirty-dollar wage floor would be a thirty-dollar wage floor regardless. So it would yeah. be an extra cost, and and the operators would have to pay that. So the dispute, though, has been greenlit for negotiation. Does that mean New Zealand Bus has to come to the table as part of that negotiation? Uh, for the fair pay agreement negotiation, yes, yes they, they will have to be a part of that negotiation because they are one of the employers that are covered under that agreement. So it's probably it's it's a matter of time for them. And I don't expect that that negotiation will take an awful long time to go through because there has been such broad agreement between all the parties. So really, they're dragging their heels over what will be a, a small difference in money over a very short period of time, yeah. in, in my view. If, for example, the fair pay agreement drags out and, say, National come into power and they get rid of fair pay agreements, which they're threatening to do, what are yep. the options for bus drivers to get uh, the, their right wages? Uh, that's a really great question. I mean, for us, it will unfortunately be the situation of having to have sustained industrial engagement with these with these companies to try and push them over the line. That's why we're, we're so excited about fair pay agreements, about creating a standard wage floor where you don't have that, com where you take wages out of the competition factor, where businesses have to innovate in other, other factors rather than having their primary innovation being that they can find ways to lower wages to, than their competitors. That to me is competition that to me is an innovation the bus industry is ripe for you know that kind of engagement a standard wage floor would be a really really great step and that, that's why fair pay agreements are so important it's not a one-size-fits-all but it is a one-size wage floor <laughs> across the industry edward thank you very much for talking to mbr thanks very much i appreciated it The FMA dealt what appeared to be a major blow to Validus last week when it handed out its stop order. But as Nicholas Poynton writes in his debut shoeshine this week, it won't stop the multi-level marketing scheme operating here. 
Nicholas, you've been covering this company for a long time now, investigating them since, what, November last year-ish? Mm-hmm. Why don't you just remind us who they are, what they do, how you came across them? So Validus is an international multi-level marketing scheme that's registered in Delaware in the United States and is based out of Dubai. And the people who started this company have links to the infamous OneCoin scam, if people remember that from a few years back, which was a massive sort of crypto pyramid Ponzi scheme, sort of the holy trinity there. Yeah, everything and, 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 and when it collapsed, hundreds of thousands of people around the world lost millions of dollars. And what Validus's core product was that it was selling to people were these education courses or online training courses that initially started off as being teaching how to people everything about and how to trade Forex, but sort of expanded to sort of leadership and business management. And you paid for these courses in, in cryptocurrency. The prices range from sort of 50 US dollars all the way up to 10,000 US dollars. And on top of that, not only did you just receive that course, Validus told people at the start that they would invest 100% of the money you spent on that package in a smorgasbord of financial products, things like crypto, forex, NFTs, shares. They called it the Validus pool. And from there, they would pay out a return of 2% to 3% every week for 60 weeks, resulting in a spectacular 350% return on investment. It seemed that Validus had the best traders in the world. And so that was sort of the core product and what was offered, but there was also, like all multi-level marketing schemes, quite a complex uh, recruit, recruitment and sort of bonus network, whereas uh, members could sort of earn money and, and, and various rewards for recruiting people into the scheme, and they ascended sort of the various ranks within Validus. So we became aware of this sort of towards middle, towards the end of last year. I came across it on Facebook. I was seeing these ads for these events that was sort of dotted around Auckland, parts of the North Island, and largely to, seemed to be targeting sort of Tongan New Zealanders. So from there, I couldn't help myself. We started going along to these meetings and were really sort of blown away about what was being talked about, sort of the claims that were being made, and how these people were sort of advertising or sort of promoting this to people. And then that sort of brought us to the event that we wrote about in sort of November last year, which was a massive event at Mount Smart Stadium. About I estimate about 250 people were there, mainly the Tongan community. One of Validus's top brass, or top dogs, a guy called Powers Darwald, had flown in from overseas for this event to promote it. And that really formed our first basis of our first story. And then you kept reporting on these guys, and it wasn't long until the FMA started taking notice. What were their actions? Yes, yeah, so the FM, after that first story, you know, we kept on reporting it. The regulators were sort of slow to react, or they were sort of, but we knew that it was definitely on their radar after that story. And all sort of came to a head in sort of February of this year when the FMA hit Validus with an interim stop order, which effectively banned the company from operating here for 30 days while it considered a permanent stop order. And some time passed and Validus was subsequently hit with a permanent stop order on May the 2nd. But unfortunately, the FMA couldn't publish that decision because Validus hired some sort of gun lawyers here from Balgali to actually fight it. And they managed to actually get the details or, you know, get a suppression order to stop that stop order from being published while they sought an appeal from the High Court. Ultimately, the Validus lost that case. The judge dismissed it, all their arguments, and that judgment was the judgment was published last week, and the stop order was published the same day on July fifth. And that judgment, that decision, made for some interesting reading because the basis of what why the FMA went after Validus was because of this Validus pool product, because it sort of met all the met, met all the criteria of an unlicensed financial product that mm-hmm. Validus was offering. So when they wrote to Validus on March twenty fourth to notify them about this, about their intention to hit them with the stop order. Validus had a right of reply. Five days later, they came back and said, actually, no, that that pool product never existed. We removed it from all communication. Well, the FMA took what I thought was quite a clever response and decided to accept those statements as true. You know, like, let's let's assume that there is no product. Mm. Well, that means that at that event in November last year, you were advertising and promoting a product that did not exist. Right. So that was how the FMA ultimately nailed uh, Validus. And, you know, that was quite... When I first saw that decision, I thought, wow, this, this is massive. 
but it was sort of over time, and I gave myself a couple of days, and I only sort of began to marinate on what the actual terms and what was involved here, and I began to sort of have some doubts about how effective yeah, this might you, be. You hear stop order, and you go, okay, job done, that's it, but you're maybe not so sure. Yeah, look, I'll... I should say that the stop order would have massive reputational damage for EFMAT. It's quite clear. You know, you don't hire Bell Gully, some of the most expensive lawyers in the country, to go into bat for you if if you're not determined to try and win this case. And, look, after that stop order was published, every news company in the country pretty much picked it up. You had these content aggregating websites sort of syndicating it. You Google Validus, it's the first thing that comes up. So, naturally, there was definitely, you don't want this to be in the press, you want to keep this under wraps. But the more I began to think about it, I looked at the wording of that stop order. It prohibits Validus and its associated people from offering, promoting, or accepting money for financial products. But Validus has said time and time again, it says in its updated financial uh, and its presentations that it does not offer a financial product. So technically, and this has been confirmed to me by the FMA, Validus can continue to operate, its local promoters here can continue to have online seminars, they can hold in-person events to promote these educational courses. So the training courses are fine. The training courses are fine. Right. The recruitment side of it, that wasn't captured by the FMA's sort of uh, investigation because they were only concerned with financial products. They don't look into suspected pyramid schemes. That's the domain of the Commerce Commission. And it is worth mentioning that the Commerce Commission has launched a probe mm. of its own into, um, into Validus. And that's why I've sort of come to this conclusion that this blow, while you know quite a setback for Validus, it's still standing. It can still kind of actually technically still operate here in New Zealand. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they actually do so. Despite that, though, you have covered other challenges that the company has been facing this year. So what were some of those? How, yeah, what's, what's next? Yeah, it's one of the big problems, one of the challenges that Validus have been facing in the next six months is going to be very interesting for this company was they're having withdrawal issues. So, you know, that money that you were spending and they were going to invest, you could, with, you know, people could withdraw that with a 5% fee. But on April 19th and April 20th, they notified all their members that were actually temporarily suspending withdrawals. And it seemed like innocuous stuff at the start. They said, they're having this big sort of IT security upgrade and this is what was the delay. But there have been subsequent delay after delay after delay that people have not been able to pull their money out of this scheme. And it all sort of came to a head on July 5th, the same day the stop order came out. They notified you know, a large chunk of its members that, regrettably, all withdrawal requests have been cancelled. So there'll be validus members around the world who'll be scratching their heads thinking, wait, what's going on here? Mm. I thought I was going to get a massive return on investment, even though you say that it's not an investment, but that's what I was sold last year. So that's one clear issue to me that makes me wonder... How long can this thing actually go on? The other is around sort of recruitment, and there's been a massive emphasis on this in these global Zoom calls that Validus hosts from uh, from time to time. You know, they've, 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 they've taken steps to make it easier for people to ascend its ranking system and earn various rewards and points. They've also um, made it harder for people to sort of earn as many rewards as they once did in the past. And you sort of have to step back and think about, well, why are they doing this? If recruitment was going really well, mm-hmm. you wouldn't need to sort of offer these discounts or really ram this down people's throats during these big online presentations that they're having. And one other thing that I've seen that sort of led me to believe that there has been a bit of a recruitment slowdown is just website traffic to the Validus website has more than halved over the past three months. And that really does sort of align with the suspension of withdrawals. So what's next for Validus? I have no idea at this stage. It's been kind of a company that's really defied me over the past nine months. Uh, you know, But that Commerce Commission probe, the outcome of that, depending on what it is, if they come out swinging and found mm-hmm. that uh, Validus has actually breached the Fair Trading Act, that they rule it, you know, they, they investigate it on grounds that it might be a pyramid scheme, that could prove fatal for the company. I have, you know, I would suspect that, uh, you know, an OECD company like New Zealand, when its regulators go after a company like this, others around the world would definitely take notice. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Brittany Tay first made her name on the tennis court, but in recent years she's made it her mission to improve technological and financial literacy for children, particularly in Māori and Pacifica communities. 
Her Kids Coin software helps teach kids better money habits in a fun and practical way, while her training and recruitment company, Three Bags Full, seeks to empower people to step onto digital career pathways that haven't typically been open to them. Kia ora, Brittany. Kia ora. So you played tennis from a young age. How, how young, how, how serious did it get? It got pretty serious pretty quick. Mm. Uh, I started when I was eight years old, so literally by chance, well actually the story goes, I was really obsessed with tennis rackets when I first saw tennis on the TV at three years old. Oh wow. Uh, but my family being Pacific Island at the time were really into netball and touch rugby. So they're kind of like, no, we, you know, we don't play tennis. Ironically, tennis is the national sport for the Cook Islands. Anyway, <laughs> really became really obsessed, kept nagging, 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 nagging uh, my mum to put me into it. And then finally at eight years old, they were over it. So my nana took me down to West End Tennis Club, local club. And at the time, the coach there was also the New Zealand selector. So it was just like a chance situation where I jumped on the court um, was picked up for you know other training opportunities and it kind of just snowboarded from there. Wow, yeah. wow. Yeah. And so you say you, you travelled internationally. So did you have a, a ranking globally or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were in the top sort of two hundred in the world when we were juniors. Um, yeah, we we travelled everywhere from about eleven years old. Wow. Uh, I unfortunately had a really major injury when I was fourteen. So we were playing in the like a lead-up tournament to the World Youth Cup uh, in Germany. Um, yeah, and I broke my foot on the court. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, so did you come back to tennis after that, or was that about the time you decided yeah, yeah. to try so something else? Yeah, I did a bit of a comeback, okay. so I kind of spiralled a little bit, you know, during the injury, not a lot of support for young elite athletes in that space, another area I'm really passionate about. Um, but yeah, it came back when I was about 17 or 18, mm. Uh, again, chance thing was at a party, saw one of the Japanese girls playing Serena Williams at the Aussie Open and had this epiphany moment where I was like, oh, I was actually quite good, you know, because I used to play against the Japanese girl and, and win matches. So that was kind of my motivation. Um, and I did a bit of a social experiment on myself by, I guess, working on my mindset and saying, well, what would I achieve if I became my own best friend? Like, what does that look like? So. Coming back was a bit of a an experiment, mm. you know, to see what I could actually accomplish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did the experiment go? Yeah, I mean, I got to the Commonwealth Games in 18 months after that massive injury break. Mm. Um, went and played in Pacific Games and Pacific Mini Games, represented the Cook Islands, uh, got back on the circuit in about eight months, yeah. Excellent. It, it worked out. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, in terms of your what you've taken from that career to what you're doing now, and we'll talk about your, your business endeavours, but do you feel like that sort of experiment really helped you push into the business world? Yeah. I mean, not intentionally. You know, I think you, do, you draw back on experiences of your past and realise after the fact, I think, a lot of the time. So for me, that was definitely the case with that. Uh, you know, the resilience and I guess like being able to pick a passion and learning to just go for it fearlessly, you know, and courageously, I think that's transferable into anything really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, tell me about Kids Coin then. Is, it, is that sort of the first job that you had, proper job or? Kind of. I, I sort of joke, but in all seriousness, I really got into business because I was so anxious about writing CVs. Like I just didn't think anyone would actually hire me because at that point, all I'd done was play tennis, mm. you know. Um, but it was also, I guess, a combination of my experiences of having mum, you know, who's in the education sector has been there for like four decades, sorry mum, <laughs> uh, or thereabouts, specialising in, you know, educating Māori and Pacific, as well as what I'd done in tennis, and then my own personal experiences with money or lack of financial, you know, literacy and knowledge at the time. So I kind of brought everything together, mm-hmm. and that was, I guess, this melting pot of all the bits and pieces that led to Kids Coin. So through that process, you identified another pathway for another business, which um, is your three bags full um, sort of recruitment and, and training business. Tell me a little bit about how that developed. Yeah, so essentially our kids, so we started off with sort of seven, eight-year-olds at the time. 
like I keep referring to, that was 10 years ago now, you know, so they're kind of, they're all in high school. Mm. And basically I was just responding to the needs of the kids as they grew up because we really, as people say, co-designed or, you know, put our, our customer at the centre of our design process. So as the kids were growing, we're like, well, what do you need to learn next? What do they need to learn next? What we identified at the time was there was a big need for digital capability building as well as financial. So we kind of added on, you know, another arm or another service. Uh, and then as the kids grew up, careers started to become more relevant. So naturally, yeah, we moved into that space. We started by creating like a digital internship, uh, which is an earn and learn model. We pay kids to learn about tech careers, but also give them a job so they can start building real world experience uh, and then pathway them into tech. From there, as those kids grew up, we then moved into recruitment mm. uh, because naturally that's that's what they needed. So I always say we've grown up with our kids, you know, we've grown up with our customers. Mm. Yeah. How have you managed to support that as sort of a, a revenue model, as a business model? I mean, obviously recruitment, you, you get paid from uh, the companies as well, but the training and, and that? Yeah, so we have big believer in multiple revenue streams. <laughs> uh, we've got multiple services. It's just like having different products and services for different markets. You know, we, we've got a pipeline that we've created. So selling into schools, you know, STEM programs, digital literacy programs, financial literacy, uh, career programs in high schools, our digital internship. Uh, luck, you know, we've been really lucky to be supported a lot by government and MOE and places like yeah. that uh, because there's such a need in that space, especially for Māori and Pacific. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, very, very grateful for the support that we had to make that happen. Uh, and then obviously with commercial recruitment, like the bigger goal for me is to create a self-sustaining model that basically continues to create these opportunities for these young people to build careers. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, it's tough because um, the whole landscape's shifting at the same time as you know you're trying to trying to catch up with equity and 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 the tech landscape's kind of moving even quicker. So it's yeah. um, a tough job, but I'm glad we've got people like you on on the case. So just. Now then, I sort of end usually by asking what kind of advice you might give to young entrepreneurs um, starting out, if you've got maybe one or two key pieces. Oh, yeah, there's lots. <laughs> <laughs> Try and narrow it down. Uh, I think the first one would be to really take care of the important relationships that are close to you. Business is never more important than your loved ones. Mm. You know, it's very easy to get carried away and hype and the new thing and trying to grow and trying to drive and trying to have more. Um, but, you know, there's nothing like your closest loved ones. Like, that's the most important thing and, and keeping that balance right because I know from experience when the hard times come, that's who's going to be there, you know. Uh, so just, like, highlighting that. I think for me I'm lucky because Māori Pacific, we kind of, like, naturally put people before our mm. jobs mm, yeah. <laughs> or work. Um, but that's really important because I've seen a lot of people struggle with that over the years. Uh, and secondly is probably, I don't know, just, just back yourself. Like, you know, there's a lot of people that naysayers. Like, if I had stopped every time someone had told me that I'm crazy or you go back to tennis or what do you think you're doing or it's not going to work or, you know, I had to make informed choices. I had to educate myself. I had to read. I had to learn, no doubt. But naysayers is always going to be there. So, you know, find, find what it is within you that's going to allow you to keep going even when everyone's kind of telling you that you're being crazy. <laughs> <laughs> kia ora. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Thanks very much, Brittany. Yeah, kia ora. Thank you. The Reserve Bank left the official cash rate unchanged at 5.5% yesterday, marking the first time it hasn't hiked rates in 21 months. Joining me to discuss is ANZ Chief Economist Sharon Zollner. Well, thank you for joining us, Sharon. The RBNZ pretty much delivered what everyone was expecting. So I guess the question is, were there any surprises there? 
Yeah, there wasn't a lot of glory in getting this one right. Uh, it was pretty straightforward. Uh, they said six weeks ago that they were on hold, mm-hmm. and the data since then has been broadly supportive of, of their view. There's been some unders and overs, but overall nothing to, to really shift the dial, um, I would say. One thing we did note was a slight change in their tone around how they talked about the housing market. They seemed a little bit less pessimistic there. What do you think is behind their thinking? Yeah, so there was a good deal of copy and paste from the May monetary policy statement, which is absolutely what we were expecting. But one thing that was different was that they uh, acknowledged perhaps that their house price forecasts have been a little bit too pessimistic. A number of indicators are suggesting that house price falls at a national level are, are pretty much done, mm. whereas the Reserve Bank was expecting them to continue falling for the rest of the year. Interestingly, they also made the comment that they think house prices are now around sustainable levels. That was a little bit surprising Mm. um, because basically real house prices adjusted for incomes are back where they were in 2019 and we were not saying they were sustainable back then. But it is uh, a little bit of a a vague concept in any case. So there's certainly some wriggle room. Around the labour market, do you think we are close to reaching sort of maximum sustainable employment? The Reserve Bank's line has been that we are past maximum sustainable employment and mm-hmm. we haven't had any new reads on the unemployment rate since then. What we have had, of course, is a big surge in migration and therefore in labour supply. We've seen strong filled jobs growth, so clearly labour demand is remaining pretty solid for now, uh, but we are seeing some weakness in the likes of employment and tensions that suggests that hiring is going to cool. Uh, The Reserve Bank is forecasting the unemployment rate to rise as rapidly as it did in the global financial crisis, and that's where our view differs. Mm -hmm. While we see unemployment rising, we think it's not going to rise that quickly because essentially that fear factor, that hunker-down kind of mentality, I'm not convinced that that's spread beyond those sectors and households that are most directly affected by monetary policy. The the influx of migrants from overseas, what sort of impact could that have? have on inflation though you know sort of new spending coming into the economy sort of demand for uh, you know your sort of big ticket items if you're sort of moving into a house and those sorts of things is that likely to have any upward pressure on prices? So the impact of net migration on inflation is ambiguous. Mm. On the one hand it boosts demand for housing and you can see in Australia for example where they've had a very similar sized surge in migration but a few months earlier than us uh, that rents in Sydney are rising quite sharply for example. Uh, it could also have an impact on house prices, though of course a lot of migrants uh, don't qualify to buy a house, but mm. you know some returning Kiwis, for example, do and can. Uh, on the other hand, of course, uh, they also add to labour supply. And so basically in our forecast, we don't have large-scale job losses at all. We have labour capacity opening up uh, through a, an increase in labour supply. Now, I mean, that would be a, pr- a pretty good outcome, really, wouldn't it? I mean, that, that's our gut feel is that it's a little bit almost too good to be true, that we can have the mildest of mild recessions, like almost a second decimal point recession, um, and hope to get on top of inflation that's the highest in decades. Certainly so far so good, uh, but it isn't necessarily just going to be linear. This some pretty low-hanging fruit in terms of getting inflation down. Shipping costs have plummeted. The oil price is a lot lower. The cyclone effects are washing through. Uh, there's there's a lot of things that have actually seen headline inflation fall globally, and that will feed through to New Zealand. But the, the domestic sticky inflation that reflects things like wages, uh, wage demands, um, and that sort of thing, we've just got a sense that could be uh, a little bit harder to root out, that mm. getting inflation down from 4 to 2 could be a lot harder than getting it down from 7 to 5. This is maybe where you slightly differ from other economists. You know, I've seen a lot of commentary come through since the decision where many think that the RBNZ is now sort of a, a wait-and-see phase, but you're maybe slightly more hawkish. Oh, we agree the Reserve Bank is waiting and seeing, and that's an entirely credible and reasonable thing to do. Mm. At this point, everything's going in the right direction, so you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, essentially. I mean, we're in the sweet spot, really, mm. uh, where actually we've seen, we've seen a slight bounce in some of the activity and confidence indicators, still at very subdued levels. Mm. But to see those rise but the inflation indicator is still falling. Well, that's the best of, of both worlds. Uh, but our sense is that um, that is unlikely to continue. So on balance, we think the Reserve Bank might need to do a little bit more. So we've got a 25 basis point hike uh, penciled in for November. Now, we're not expecting to look right, even if we are right, for quite some time. So, for example, next week, we're expecting CPI inflation to come out a little bit lower than the Reserve Bank was forecasting in May. 
Where are your forecasts at, 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 in terms of when the RBNZ can begin to think about even lowering interest rates? Because I'm sure that's on top of many people's minds at the moment. Yeah, so there's a, a wide range of views out there about how much damage the Reserve Bank's already done to the economy and doesn't mm. know about it yet, be, just, just because of the lags at, through which monetary policy operates. It always takes a, a long time to feed through. So there are some that are out there who are saying they've already done too much and they'll be cutting soon. Uh, we're at the opposite end of the scale. Um, so, but our view is that they're going to have to hold rates at contractionary levels for, for quite some time to root out that last bit of infl- excess inflation. So we don't actually have them cutting until the very end of next year. But in practice, you know, New Zealand doesn't tend to go into recession because of what the Reserve Bank here does. Mm. We tend to go into recession because of global shocks, which change the picture very abruptly. And, and that could be how it pans out this time. Yeah, I mean, you did make mention some of those global factors, one sort of, you know, uh, economic growth amongst our trading partners is below trend, growth in, in China is moderating. How sort of serious are those risks? Are they likely to deliver a shock or a more sort of a, a gradual decline there in sort of economic growth here? Yeah, so that debate about whether central banks are going to manage to land the 747 on the postage stamp, you know, where that debate is, is being held globally. And of course, mm. the most important central bank in the world is the US Federal Reserve. And uh, they are having to go quite aggressively on inflation. They've had a much bigger fall in headline inflation. Mm. Uh, but again, signs of sticking and that core inflation. But they've got an extra overlay of complexity insofar as they've had some wobbles in financial stability Mm. in their regional banks. And while you can trade off growth for inflation, because you can point out that this is a long-term game and it'll all be worth it, you cannot trade off financial stability Mm. for anything. You can't sit there among the smoking ruins and go, look, inflation's one percent. Well done, us. You know that that's not an option. Mm. So that you know, obviously things they may have to keep hiking till they break something. Or another scenario would be that they are forced to stop hiking before they've really uh, got on top of inflation. Uh, neither of those things are our forecast, but they're mm. both possibilities. Wonderful. Well, thank you for your time and your analysis, Sharon. You're welcome. payments business Symphony was launched today with the aim of simplifying things for insurance brokers. I'm joined today by Symphony co-founder Sean Quincy to talk about the company. Welcome Sean. Thanks for having me. So why start Symphony and what does it mean for insurance sector? Well I think it all comes down to customer experience. We see things I guess in the market and in the payment sector where a customer is not getting the smoothest experience and when there's a little bit of trap revenue because of that. We saw what brokers were providing to the market as an amazing service, but they just didn't have the right tools. Uh, they didn't have tools which were allowing them to really scale and to provide what we would say is a, a normal e-commerce experience. So we sat back and thought, well, do we have the team to do this? And fortunately, we, we did. We had some amazing people who had built a business previously and we thought, you know what, we can build something great for the brokers in New Zealand and Australia, so we might as well give it a try. And what are some of the problems that you're hoping to solve with your company? Well, you'd be quite amazed to know that for a broker, at the moment to create an invoice for a policy. So you're just getting a normal policy, takes around about 23 minutes to send that out. Now when you're shopping online, if we were sitting there and it was taking us 23 minutes to get something from where you've just clicked on it to the checkout, we'd all be lost. That'd be the worst experience ever. No one would be able to sell anything. And yet brokers still manage to provide people with great advice, with great policies, but they're slowed down by this one particular element. And so we built something which reduced that 23 minutes down to about eight or nine seconds. So we're pretty happy with that. We think it's you know more than 10 times better and excited to uh, deliver it to them. And um, why Symphony for the name? <laughs> look, it's really there's two ways. Look, it's simplified funding of insurance, but it's also, we like the word Symphony because uh, insurance is a combination of different moving parts. And so like an orchestra, it comes together. And when it comes together well, well, you put together a symphony. And so we feel that that's a good analogy for all the different moving parts. And we want the experience to be great like a symphony. And um, you've gained traction with venture capitalists. Can you tell me a wee bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. We're really fortunate. Uh, we had uh, GD1, Icehouse Ventures, NZVC and K1W1 come into our latest funding round. So we were able to raise just about $3 million uh, two months ago um, to really sort of accelerate our path to market and provide us, I suppose, with a great starting point to get into New Zealand and provide an experience and then also to, to launch up into Australia. And what when, when you sort of pitched to these venture capitalists or they came to you, what did they sort of say? What, why, why did they want to get involved? <laughs> well, I think they can see the problem 
with the process and they can see the problem with the customer experience. And we absolutely believe that experience wins. And I think in the modern digital economy with the pandemic accelerating digital trends, everyone moving to online, they absolutely back the hypothesis that brokers need great tools. They need to be able to uh, sell insurance in a way which is modernised, simple, effective with automation. And so they believe in that and they believe it's a global problem because the way brokers sell insurance across the UK, New Zealand, Australia, large parts of Canada and and other parts of the world, um, it's pretty much the same. And so we feel like we've got a great global opportunity to, to start here in little old New Zealand and to get to Australia quickly and then spread our wings a little bit wider. And um, let's get to the business end of things. Tell me a bit about your growth plans. <laughs> growth plans? Well, look, initially we go live today, which is very exciting. Test and learn, um, basically make sure we get our initial brokers live, pushing through some policies, pushing through some payments. Uh, so much about data security is so critical and important with, with our business. And so really testing as much as we possibly can about all those different elements and how we make sure everyone's data is incredibly secure and safe. That is our number one priority. And then it's finding the larger brokers, executing on basically delivering them a solution and scaling this out here in New Zealand. And what sort of market share would you like to achieve in the next year or two? Well, I think in New Zealand totally there's around about $8.9 billion of insurance sold and about 50% of that is owned by the broker market or the broker distribution channel. So look, as as much of that as we can possibly have, obviously, for the the payments market. Um, And and look, we we start small to make sure we're serving the community well. We are delivering a great product and a great solution. And then look, we will scale as large as as, as we possibly can and serve as large a proportion of the market as we can. We're very ambitious in that. Do you have sort of a target of like how many customers you'd like to see sort of sign up by the end of the year? Or? And by the end of the year, absolutely. So we're like 100 brokers on board the platform by the end of the year. Um, and so that would be a great success. Look, it's um, that is very ambitious and it depends on a couple of external factors, but uh, we wouldn't have raised capital and um, sort of throw ourselves into the deep end if we didn't think we could do something like that. Mm-hmm. And are you appealing to sort of larger firms as well or are you going for independent brokers? What's that sort of yeah, look like? Yeah, so we, in New Zealand, you've got four or five large groups of, of brokers who do a great job, have different software that they use, and basically what we need to do is integrate with that software. And so every one of those groups is really a combination of a number of small brokers, and we've designed the platform as well so it will work for the individual broker. And so whether you're part of a large group or you are an independent broker and there's only one of you and you're a one-person band, we can serve you, or we can work with a larger groups by providing everyone with the same tools that then scale up reporting to the wider um, ownership model as well. So it's kind of been designed to work with a broker as a a mobile tool that can be used to basically make payments a lot faster and easier for them and that can scale up to the bigger groups whenever they need to. And you mentioned that you want to get to Australia soon. What sort of time frame are we looking at? Uh, Well, we're going to the uh, NEBA, which is the National Insurance Brokers Association Convention in October. So we are working as hard and as fast as we can to get the platform all live for October. I think our engineering team is confident that that will happen and uh, we would like to see some payments processed over there Q4 this year. And beyond that, do you sort of hope to get to the UK or the US? Yeah, I think the UK would be great. The The similarities and the way the uh, operations all work would be quite nice to, to slide into UK and make things a little bit simpler. Um, there is a lot of work to do in Australia, and so we don't want to get too carried away. We need to be able to execute and deliver uh, into that market really, really well, and that will be the, the next biggest challenge and certainly uh, the 2024 challenge is basically trying to serve that market as best as we can scaling the team and finding some talent and um, then spreading the wings wherever the demand comes from, really. And what, how much sort of revenue would you like to make sort of roughly by the end of the year or sort of a year or two's time? <laughs> oh, look, I think the answer to the venture capitals, if <laughs> funds, if they're listening, is as much <laughs> as possible, right? It's the number one thing. And uh, in this market, it's also incredibly important. You know, you, I suppose 2020 and 2021, you, as a startup or a new business, you might have been able to get away with not being able to generate or drive a lot more revenue. And so it's an absolute focus for us. Um, look, if we, can, if we can crack $2 million by the end of this year in revenue, we'll be absolutely delighted. Um, that would be awesome. And then if we can keep scaling at the same rate by the end of next year, well, um, I think we might not need to raise capital ever again. And do you have a time frame that you'd like to be profitable by? Well, profit's an interesting one. I think um, it will depend depend on the growth ambition really and uh, we work for our shareholders um, they're, the, they're, the, they're the owners and we, we have a, a large shareholding as well but ultimately we, we work for them and we need to drive results for them 
at a point in time we'll sit back and go, well, how big do we want to be? Where do we want to grow? Or do we want to push for productivity? And growth generally takes investment, which takes away from profit. And so we either raise capital again or reinvest funds. So it's definitely not the focus in the short term. Uh, medium term, absolutely. Um, revenue is the, always the focus all day, every day. But as we grow, we need to spend more than we make. And so we'll keep doing that for as, until as we uh, reach a, a point where we're comfortable. And I know you've just launched today, but yes. looking forward, sort of, do you have an exit plan? <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I think um, this market is, is really interesting in that it's huge, right? The, 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 the TAM, so the total accessible market of insurance is massive. Um, I think it's, it's eight point something trillion dollars of insurance is sold every year around the world. Uh, for us, we're certainly committing to a 10-year journey to build this business to as big as we possibly can um, across multiple geographies. And so... Anything I say, I don't really know <laughs> in terms of that. That's what we want to do. We want to keep growing. We want to keep building. And I'm no doubt there'll be lots of conversations along the way and um, sort of ways we might liquidate the shareholdings and things, but we'll just see how we go. We'll grow as hard as fast as we can and hopefully those doors open at the right time. Could you see going public eventually or listing? Um, uh Look, I, I prefer to run privately operated companies, but absolutely, I think if we get big enough, there is always um, you know a need for more capital, and um, running an IPO process is a great way to raise a whole lot of capital, uh, but it also adds a whole lot of OPEX to the business too, so we've got to really think if that's the right thing for the business at the time. I don't see in the next five years we would IPO or anything like that. We'd certainly rather uh, raise private money if we needed to keep raising, or just make enough revenue where we didn't have to. Mm-hmm. And your co-founder, Damien. This is the second business that you've opened together, so yes. starting with Genoa Pay. Um, why are you branching out from Buy Now, Pay Later? Look, well, Buy Now, Pay Later was really good. It was exciting. It was an interesting time. It was disruptive for the retail finance and, and lending market. Um, I think cost of funds have made it really hard to continue to scale and survive. That business was so competitive across Australia and New Zealand. I think when we launched uh, Genoa Pay, there was three businesses. And then by the time we'd sold the business end of 2018, there was 27. And so good time to get out of that particular business. We hit the results we needed to hit and um, then moved on. What we did see, though, and Damon and I really saw when we were looking at the insurance market is very similar patterns to what was in retail finance maybe eight or nine years ago. A lot of paper-based processes, a lot of PDF-based processes, and we thought, well, that's really interesting that we can perhaps take some of the skills we learned in providing great experiences, simple, transparent terms and conditions, delivering those to customers, and build that into a, a, a bigger software solution for people that we think need it, which are insurance brokers, so they can give their customers the best experience. And has the sort of buy now, pay later sector become trickier with new regulation coming up? Um, I think regulation is really good for the sector. Uh, I think it's fantastic. It needed to happen. Um, I was part of the uh, Code of Conduct Committee for New Zealand and, and going into Australia as well, and we have been pushing for it. Or, as a sector previously for a long time. So it's great. Um, I still back it as a product. I still think it's an awesome solution. I still believe it's better than interest-bearing products uh, if used in the right way. And we've just got to tighten the things around it so it's used in the right way and the right people access it. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Thanks Sean. for having me. Cheers. Kōkaku was started in 2001 by a pioneering couple, um, Helen and Christian. Um, they had travelled through Italy and they'd sort of... Um, they were really inspired by the Italian coffee culture, but they felt that there was a gap in the market in New Zealand for more of a New Zealand uh, type of coffee brand. So they started Kōkako as a coffee cart in Aotea Square in 2001. I'd been living in Melbourne and I'd sort of seen the, the rise of the specialty coffee movement there, um, or what we call the third wave of coffee. And I sort of spent my weekends traveling around all these cafes and taking notes and um, trying to understand what was driving it. And I kind of decided I want to go back to New Zealand and I want to do something similar. And initially I wanted to start a cafe, uh, but um, for whatever reason I couldn't get a lease. And so I started looking at um, businesses that I could purchase and I found uh, Kōkāko for sale. Um, it was old school, classified advert in the Herald, um, you know, just said, you know, three revenue streams, catering, coffee roasting, cafe. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. It's got an organic, natural slant to it, um, which I'm interested in. And so, yeah, I ended up the owner of it in May 2007 and never owned a coffee business. I've been in food and beverage since I was 17, but I never owned a coffee business. So um, it was a steep learning curve. 
I was 31. Um, I'd owned a business before. I'd actually owned a Hell Pizza franchise, and I'd worked with the, the founders of Hell Pizza as well, helping them. Um, after I sold that business, I sort of helped them more at an operational level. And I think when I finally got my hands on my own brand, I wanted to be too many things to too many people. And so I tried to expand all three parts of the business at the same time, and I was undercapitalized. And this was 2007. So, you know, by the, by the time 2009 came around, we were sort of into a recession, and I was in expansion mode, and, you know, things unraveled a little bit. So um, I think one of the big lessons for me is be a specialist, not a generalist. And um, since we're focused just on being a coffee roaster, um, the business has been in a lot better shape. Just focus on one thing and do it really well rather than multiple things and not do them so well. Um, and also focus on your own well-being and your own mental health because at the end of the day that's the most important thing if you're a leader of a business. I think some of the challenges would just be people do say it's lonely at the top and you know it sounds a bit of a weird term to say that because I'm a team player and I feel like we are a team but often there is a little bit of isolation if you're the owner of a business um, and it's just juggling lots of different things you know you've got I've got 22 staff that I have a sense of responsibility for ensuring that I can pay them every week so we've got to keep sales you know consistent we've got to continue to grow we've got to keep shareholders happy um, we've got to manage cash flow um, we've got to service debt um, we've got to innovate um, and we've got to meet all the expectations of all stakeholders in our supply chain. So, you know, for, for a, an owner or a founder, that's quite a lot um, to take on. Generally, we look at it more rather than a supply agreement, we look at it as a partnership um, because it's not like you know, a bottled drink where all you have to do is put it in the fridge and serve it to a customer and everything's going to be fine. Um, there's a lot of variables involved in um, preparing coffee. Um, obviously, we're selecting the best quality coffee, we're roasting it um, to a really high standard, we're putting it in compostable bags and we've got to get it to the cafe. And then it's their sort of turn to make sure that they follow, follow our best practice guidelines for espresso preparation or filter coffee. We have an in-house trainer who does an amazing job of keeping an eye on the quality control um, out there in cafes. And we work with um, partners who actually share in that vision to produce a quality product. So um, even if the owner is not on the machine, we make sure that they have come in and at least understand how to make a quality coffee so that they can spot anything that's going wrong. Occasionally we do quality checks as well um, and we rely on feedback from our account managers who are out talking to people. But yeah, it's a shared partnership and the standard of coffee in New Zealand is so high that um, every cafe owner that works with us knows that they have to continue to reinvest in um, training and um, making sure that their equipment's well maintained. Farmers are, continue to face challenges, so climate change is in some areas that grow coffee it's been exacerbated um, by either drought or flooding um, or a combination of those two things. I've been to PNG when it's in drought and I've also been to PNG in the wet season and it plays havoc with supply chain, um, getting the coffee down to the exporter for um, processing and grading can be difficult. Um, and then they've also got to be able to put diesel in their land cruisers to get the product down to market. Um, you had massive volatility during COVID around shipping prices. Um, thankfully that's come back down, but that just went crazy for a period. And we've, we work with really good um, green bean importers who sort of helped to soften the blow a little bit for us. Um, by being fair trade certified, there is that minimum price guarantee as well. Um, so there's the minimum price guarantee around fair trade and also there's an organic premium as well. So that, that's a massive benefit to the farmers and it allows those coffee farmers to reinvest using the premium in whatever that community might need, whether it's a water sanitation project, roading and infrastructure, coffee nurseries, what have you, schooling. Um, and so for us, um, 
understanding the supply chain is really important and then articulating that to consumers in New Zealand is also important because it makes you realise that actually $5 or thereabouts for a cup of coffee is an absolute bargain and if you think about that compared to a wine or a beer, um, you're getting a pretty good deal. Coffee is a local thing and although we've got um, a lot of, we've had a lot of interest from overseas, particularly Singapore and Japan. We currently export um, our drinking chocolate to Singapore and we have done for over 10 years. Um, we've got trademarks in the USA, Japan, Singapore and Australia and they're really just there for future potential growth. So the only way that we would expand would be into overseas territories would be if we partnered with someone in that territory and we're able to create a local roastery so that we could I suppose replicate what we've done here. I, I suppose I just want Kokaku to continue to flourish. Um, I have a lot of um, respect for the team that we have here and I want to see um, them continue to grow their career either with us or go on and do their own thing and we've got an amazing roll call of people who've gone and done that. So that's really important to me. Um, the financial side's important, the social side's important, the environmental side is important. So um, yeah, I suppose um, I'm still very focused on growth, but not just growth for growth's sake. I suppose I've learned the hard way that, you know, just continuing to focus on financial metrics are not always the key to success. And it's actually okay to be comfortable with a certain level of revenue, um, provided that you know all your stakeholders are happy. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.